1: Yes, it is. And welcome back Wednesday, November 24th, 2021. I hope you're putting together your fancy holiday meals. Don't let the ideologues steal Thanksgiving from you, writes Melanie Kirkpatrick in the Wall Street Journal. As we mark the 400th anniversary of what has come to be known as the first Thanksgiving, it's necessary to come to the defense of the long, cherished holiday as it's become necessary to come to the defense of Western civilization. Thanksgiving is Americans' oldest tradition, celebrated by almost every native-born citizen as well as by newcomers for whom it is a rite of passage into our national family. The tradition extends outside the country. No matter where in the world we Americans find ourselves, on the fourth Thursday of November, we come together to give thanks, fulfilling the prediction of Sarah Joseph Hale, the 19th century editor magazine editor whose singular efforts, Thanksgiving, was transformed, who due to her singular efforts, Thanksgiving was transformed from a series of local celebrations on various states into a shared national one. This uh, felicitous, this happy custom of the holiday demands that no one be excluded. The widowed aunt, the grouchy grandpa, the co-worker with nowhere else to go, all receive invitations to dinner on Thanksgiving Day, don't they? Americans on the margins of society are included in the celebration thanks to the generosity of individuals, religious organizations, and philanthropies that make sure the less fortunate among us have an opportunity to mark the day. Everyone has a place at the nation's Thanksgiving table, regardless of circumstances or creed. I want to come back to that point and what Melanie is writing about after we uh, talk with our uh, very special guest, our old friend Alex Berenson, he has a brand new book out. I guess I should say this pandemic is the tale of two books. Um, if you want, if you want to know what not to do, you can read leadership lessons from Andrew Andrew Cuomo on the pandemic. If you want to know what to do and what has transpired for going on about two years, you want Alex Berenson's book, Pandemia, How the Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government Rights and Lives. Hello, old friend. Alex, how are you? I'm, I'm all right. How are you? Well, I am fine. Congratulations on your book. I am so glad you did it, and it came out just in time. I want to talk to you about some of the things people are going to, be discussing about COVID over thanksgiving but about this book pandemia uh first of all probably a question you don't get a lot um alex you dedicate it to harvey who fought to the end i'm always interested in why authors choose to pick who they pick to dedicate their book to do you want to say something about that
2: sure um so so harvey uh was my father um and he died last year today i i i discuss it in the book a little bit Mm -hmm. um Uh, he died of leukemia. Um, he actually, uh, he got sick about, uh, three years ago in 2018. Uh, and, uh, 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 that's, uh, steadily actually it would be 2017, I guess, because now it's been 18 months since he died, but, uh, uh, he, you know, he, he got steadily sicker, but he actually was a tough guy. And he sort of worked, uh, almost until, um, almost until like a week before he died. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, as I talk about in the book, uh, you know, he, he, he lived long enough to see the beginning of COVID and the beginning of lockdown. and he actually didn't like what, uh, you know, what my position was. Mm-hmm. Um, which is totally understandable because, you know, he was very sick with a blood cancer and if he had gotten COVID, he, you know, it would have killed him. Um, but of course he died anyway. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, I think something that people may think, you know, people who don't like me, and of course there are many people don't like me, is, oh, you know, he's angry that, uh, you know, his father died, and, uh, you know, didn't die of COVID, and, and, you know, that those deaths have been sort of ignored the last 18 months, mm. um, mm-hmm. and, and I would say there's probably some truth in that, but, but the fact is that, you know, even in the United States, uh, you know, last year, ninety percent of people almost who died didn't die of COVID. That's right. And it's like we we ignored everything nope. else in society except these COVID deaths. And that you know, that's not that wasn't just a problem for my father. It was a problem for all of us. And so um so that's who the book is dedicated to. Nice. And and you know, pandemia is I'd say it's about eighty or eighty five percent about uh the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's a you know, it's fifteen percent about sort of what happened to my life as a result of my becoming this voice. Well, Um, yes, but it's instructive
1: and it's part and parcel of what happened to our society, Um, the the 15% that you're describing. If I could be so bold, Alex, the crux of the book to me is found on page 381, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Let me quote it to you, and I'd like you to take it from there. So here we are, almost two years in. The right answer to COVID has not changed since the spring of 2020 when the empty hospital ships sailed sailed out of the harbor of New York, proving that even at its worst, SARS-CoV-2 could not collapse our medical system. The right answer has not changed since 2006 when Donald Henderson, who helped eradicate the smallpox, explained experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. You want to take it from there?
2: Sure. I mean, so, you know, this was sort of accepted wisdom. And something, you know, very strange has happened. It's ha- It happened in 2020. But if you look, and people are starting to realize this, the groundwork was laid for this in the last two decades, mm-hmm. right? So, so this, this over response didn't come out of nowhere. There's been this group of people, very, you know, very prominent, very successful people from, from Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg to people in government to academics saying something terrible is going to happen. A pandemic is coming. A pandemic is coming. They've been saying it for 20 years. And, and it didn't come, by the way, right? So, you know, the original SARS didn't really do anything. It flamed out. And swine flu flamed out, and H1N1 flamed out, and MERS flamed out, and Ebola flamed out, and then, weirdly enough, we get this pandemic that where the where the it appears that at you know at best this was there was some manipulation of a naturally occurring virus in a lab that then that then leaked, right? I mean, at the most innocent, look, yeah, that's right. At the most, I would say that's about the best explanation. Okay. And so and and this thing comes and guess you know and 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 the. Same people who uh, who've been saying it's going to happen suddenly leap into action, mm-hmm. and we have this Titanic overreaction. Um, and and by the way, the, the flip side of this is the vaccine. So so in all these game scenarios, that the and, you know Robert Kennedy uh, has a new book out, and 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 he sort of goes into these these you know the many uh, sort of tabletop exercises that were done about a pandemic starting in two thousand. And the answer was always going to be, well, the vaccine is going to get us back to normal or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of what we were told with this one. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, biology, the biology of the virus and the biology of the vaccines or the, you know, the the, 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 the chemistry and science of the vaccines have not cooperated. The vaccines. And again, we can we don't have to go into a long discussion about whether or not the vaccines are, you know, how risky they are and what's really happening. I think at this point, everyone would agree. The vaccines are not capable of eliminating or even meaningfully eradicating this virus. Can I We're pause on that? Can I, can I yes. pause
1: on that? Because yes. I, I, I would like to think that, but I cannot tell you how many people in the last two weeks I have run into, friends, uh, family members, family members of friends, friends of family members who have been saying, I have relatives who won't come unless I'm vaccinated. They they speaking in the first person. Right, there right. is a pervasive set of myths that are still circulating where people think that my producer putting on a jacket will keep me warm.
2: <laughs> and, 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 well, I mean, do these people not know what's going on in Europe? No, I they, guess don't. they don't know. They
1: don't. I mean, yeah.
2: they don't know what happened in Israel. They don't know what happened. You know, what's happened in the UK? What's happening? These places that have levels of vaccine acceptance and vaccine use that are higher than, you know, than, than anyone ever imagined was possible. You know, not, and, and, and they have, uh, you know, full-scale outbreaks happening right now. All, you know, Germany had its worst day ever a few days ago. So uh, so vaccines, at best, it looks like they're going to keep some people out of the hospital. Right. Um, and, and, and so, so we're going to have to learn to live with this. And the people running these sort of war game scenarios never figured out how to get us out of this if the vaccine didn't work. And so, you know, I, the United States, we're in, we're in a somewhat better position because there is a strong, you know, there's a sort of strong tradition of individual rights and there's sort of a loud, um, you know, populist movement, not entire, not always on the right, but, you know, right now it's being led by the right, I would say, that isn't going to sort of lie down for, you know, a full-scale government washout of individual rights for this, you know, this, this thing that's a cold for a lot of people. But if you look at Europe, if you look at Australia, you look at New Zealand, the, the risk that that can happen and is happening is very real right
1: now what one what one wants to um what what one wishes didn't happen is what is happening uh to explain that from those who don't know better they will say well the reason those things are happening is because of the obdurate population that refuses to vaccinate if we would just get 100 percent compliance this would be over that's
2: false it's a total lie i mean again you, these countries that are near complete vaccination, uh, this thing is going on and on. And frankly, if you look at the countries that have done the best right now, um, aside from Sweden, in, you know, in in Europe, there are countries in Africa that essentially have no vaccination or very low vaccination. India, which had, uh, you know, which had a tremendous natural surge uh, in the spring and has relatively low vaccination, not with the not with the Western vaccines, with the China, you know with local vaccines that don't work very well. Meanwhile, there's China. We have no idea what's happening in China. But it looks like the uh, you know the the, the third world, as, as it used to be called, uh, is going to be done with this um, without really ever having suffered from it. And, and so we really should be asking ourselves what is going on. with
1: You, um, until this pandemic hit, uh, Alex, uh, you weren't known as a man uh, uh, of the right. You weren't known as in in conservative circles as, as, you know, a a conservative spokesman, a conservative thought leader. And, And to this day, I don't actually know your politics, and that's fine. Were you shocked by how much politics dominated this and how... People started cheering for certain therapies and booing or 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 denigrating others and politicizing the very mitigation efforts that you know this this uh, the, the the this person you quoted um uh, uh, was trying to explain dr henderson you know this this is something that needs calm, not politics. were you surprised how political this all came
2: uh no because you know, as, as, as it's increasingly obvious, Donald Trump destroyed journalism.
1: Okay. <laughs> Donald
2: Trump's a very problematic guy. He's had a lot of very, and, you know, your listeners aren't going to want to hear me say this. He's had a lot of very problematic effects on the United States and American politics. And one of the problems he's caused is he's destroyed journalism. So, uh, so there's this open, you know, hatred of Trump last year. And, and you know, and as soon, as soon as he, uh, you know, started talking about hydroxychloroquine, then hydroxychloroquine had to be bad. I mean, I say, and I'm not joking about this, the worst thing that it's really too bad that Trump didn't win because from the point of view of questioning the vaccines, because had he won and had he pushed the vaccine, we would be, reporters would be skeptical of them in a way that needs to be happening right now and it's not happening. Um, But no, journalism has been terribly politicized. Medicine is increasingly politicized and very basic questions, about our response to COVID and now about these vaccines are not allowed to be asked. It is, it is insane, Seth, that I am really the only investigative reporter in the United States. I'm not the only person, but I'm the only serious investigative reporter in the United States asking any of these questions. There should be, there should be you know, 50 of us.
1: Uh, there should be. And once upon a time, that was what journalists did, isn't it? They wouldn't take the government's word for granted. And the government has given them A lot not to take for granted. I have a list, Alex. You have a longer one of things Anthony Fauci said. It's about 25 items now, none of which held true for more than 30 days. (laughs) Why wouldn't the media want to talk? Why would the media even continue to give him a microphone after he publicly admitted to lying to us about herd immunity, which he did?
2: Uh, And about masks, which he did, because. Uh, because he's the anti-Trump. Okay. Um, and he's not, you know, and it's increasingly clear, you know, he's a Democrat. And so he can do no wrong. This is the equivalent in Vietnam. If the press, you know, even past 68 had been eating out.
1: Do I still have you? Did we lose Alex? Party.
2: And, and, and you can only chalk it up to politics.
1: If you want people to take one thing from Pandemia, your book, Alex and Pandemia. If you want them to take one big thing, what would you have them take away from it?
2: Um, that we need to solve this not by depending on vaccines or other therapeutics, and, and you know there are a couple you know new drugs that may actually prove to be pretty good, but that we need to solve this simply by saying this. Virus is not worth destroying society for. Okay, this is not smallpox. Even if it were smallpox, I mean, if it we're smallpox and we're killing thirty percent of population, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to, you know, reconfigure society. Not this. Okay, and they also need to understand this is going to happen again. Mm. You know, if if it could happen with this thing, which is you know, which is a nothing again for most healthy people, the, then then who is it? You know, again, healthy non-elderly. I should, yep. I should be okay. clear cool about that. Um, uh, then, then you know what's going to happen in three years when there is a flu strain that's halfway dangerous. Yeah. So, um, so we need we need as a society not to let this happen again, and we need to understand that we are the ones who can stop this overreaction.
1: Alex, I suppose the one thing we can expect won't happen is a society turning itself inside out to stop things like obesity, right? I mean, this was your point earlier. No, but this was the serious point you were making earlier, isn't it? Some diseases, it turns out, are more deserving. Some health issues are more evidently deserving of attention than others, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. That would be be the number one most important thing we could do would be to... uh, you know, to uh, in terms of COVID and actually generally in terms of public health would be to make Americans or encourage Americans to be, uh, you know, to eat better, to exercise more, to lose weight. But no, there's no, there's no talk of that. Right,
1: right, right. No, there was talk of closing gyms. There was ac- actually action on closing gyms. <laughs> that's, that's right. We've yeah. made
2: it. We've made obesity worse. Yeah, and, and you know yeah. that's demonstrably true, and worse for kids. So, by the way, one last thing I would. Say. Yeah. You know what we have done to our children is yep. unconscionable, yep. unconscionable. And Fauci and the P- and the people on the left would not stand up to the teachers last year. And and you know I have a lot of you know for better or worse I have a lot of confidence to say what I've said because if you you know and to say what I'm saying about the vaccines because if you look at my record the last you know 20 months I was saying in you know in summer of 2020 the schools have to be open
0: mm-hmm. and I think
2: that you know that's consensus now. Mm. So, you know, I, I mean, the, the fact that it took the United States an extra year to get its schools open in many states is unconscionable.
1: There's a lot unconscionable here, and you're right to pinpoint it on what we've done to our children. We have made them political pawns in the adult games of politics and fear, and it is unconscionable, it's unforgivable. And uh, someday, some way, we're going to have to have an accounting for that. That's my that's my worry going forward. Will there be an accounting for the terror we put our th- our children through? Of course, you've written books about that sort of thing before too. Congratulations on congratulations on this one, Alex Berenson. Pandemia: How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights, and Lives. May your voice and pen grow ever stronger, Alex. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Seth, and happy Thanksgiving. And
1: happy Thanksgiving to you, sir. Much appreciated. Hope to be in touch again soon. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 508 We will be right back. Little Neil Sadaka there for you. Lynn is in Phoenix. Hello, Lynn. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Seth? I'm well, thank you.
0: So I heard Al, uh, Alex, I think it was your Alaska. Yeah. He said that Donald Trump destroyed media.
1: Broke the I press or something like that. Yeah, broke the media. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't know who Alex is, but I can't believe what a moronic statement that was. No, Donald Trump did not break the media or any of it. The media broke the media because they want to continuously push out fear porn like with COVID almost died from COVID. it isn't a joke i'm not saying that it doesn't exist but we we miss the things like ivermectin we miss the things like hcq do that, me a
1: favor that's, lynn that's do me a favor i this uh, because of the schedule here on the commercials we got to we got to hit this break stay with me because I, I i had a feeling that 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 statement uh could be taken in one of two ways i took it differently than you you may be right uh, Alex isn't a moron. Uh, maybe, maybe we don't call people morons, we don't know. But, but, but let's address it when we come back. If you'll stay, I'll be right back with you. Welcome back to the Seth Leveson show. Lynn is in Phoenix, uh, I was calling in. Uh, About my interview with Alex Berenson, where he said, among other things, about his new book on COVID, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government Rights and Lives. I was talking to him about the media, and he made the point that Trump, Trump, Donald Trump broke the media. And Lynn, you you strongly objected to that point. Go ahead with what you wanted to say, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit.
0: I do, because the media has consistently lied one thing after the next. About, you know, first of all, the Russian collusion that we now know is completely not true. And they still can't take responsibility for it. So Donald Trump didn't break the media, what have you. They did it to themselves. And so I have a hard time having somebody try to shove that down my throat when they wanted me to believe that they're the only investigative journalist, but I don't even watch TV. So I go online, I find my investigative journalists throughout, all over the place, a little sprinkle here, a little sprinkle there. But you got to dive deep. You can't just look at just anybody because you could get a bunch of crap, too. So I, I take exception to what he said because of the fact that I'm not going to believe the stuff that I, I hear clips here and there about things that are online as far as mainstream media. And I just absolutely
1: drives me out of my mind to listen to people
0: like do you hear yourself talking do you have I th- any idea what they're really
1: saying yeah i i think uh, i think a, a lot of the audience and probably 90 percent of myself agrees with what you've said um lynn but let me let me tell you the way i i i think i would say it and the way i did take it which was a, a slightly different way which is first of all you said you didn't know who Alex Berenson was. Oh, fair enough. You don't have to. Uh, no one has to. He was a uh, former uh, New York Times uh, journalist who has written several novels, bestsellers and books. And from day one of COVID has been uh, on Twitter and Substack uh, trying to explain the science of what's going on, challenging the Fauci narrative, challenging the left wing narrative and i think supporting probably everything you believe quite frankly when it comes to covid i, I you will not but, find, can i finish <laughs> yes yeah, sorry uh, well i lost my train of thought except to say that i think sorry. you would find in him the credibility of everything you are trying to substantiate and in this book documented that having been said what i took him to mean about trump breaking the media is that the media didn't know how to handle him and they were exposed. I took him to mean that every other president, every other person who has sat in the Oval Office had a relationship with the media that was far more pacific than Trump because he punched them back and they broke. They're used to doing the punching. They don't know how to take a punch. I'm somewhat of a little bit of a amateur expert on this issue of how the media treats Republicans. And it wasn't just Trump that the media said this about. I know it seems to be popular, mostly with the mainstream, mostly with the left, that, you know, Trump was an extremist. Trump was uniquely a racist. Trump was a fascist. Trump was a Hitler. Um, It's been said about every Republican candidate for president going at least back to Thomas Dewey. Let me give you Our own homegrown Barry Goldwater, who everyone thinks today is a grand old uncle, avuncular kind man uh, and celebrated, in fact, the yardstick by which they measure the Republican Party by saying, boy, I wish it was still the Republican Party of Goldwater. Let me tell you about the Republican Party of Goldwater in 1964 when he ran for president, the most famous columnist, syndicated columnist in America. At the time, I don't know what the modern-day equivalent would be, but something very close to, if you could combine, I don't know, George Will, Cal Thomas, and Paul Krugman, let's say, into one, was Drew Pearson. And covering the 1964 convention when Goldwater was nominated at the Cow Palace, he wrote in his column, the smell of fascism is in the air at this convention. Martin Luther King called Barry Goldwater's convention, quote, dangerous in its Hitlerism. The president of the American Jewish Congress warned, quote, a Jewish vote for Goldwater is a vote for Jewish suicide. The head of the AFL-CIO, the respected George Meany, said, quote, the hands of union-hating extremists, racial bigots, woolly-minded seekers after visions of times long past is what dominates the Goldwater movement. One magazine even surveyed over a thousand psychiatrists to diagnose Goldwater as mentally unfit to be president, even though they never even shook his hand, much less met him or stood in a room with him. This has been going on for Republicans for some time. Trump was the first one to punch back. And that's what I think he meant by breaking the media. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. By the way, it wasn't just Goldwater. It was, uh, it was about uh, Thomas Dewey. It was – you know who it – it was obviously uh, – the media did this to Richard Nixon. The one uh, that I find most interesting outside of Goldwater is Reagan, who is also now celebrated as this kind of uncular man who many people wish the Republican Party would be more like. I – Co-authored a book, American Greatness, showing that Trump was perfectly in sync with William Buckley, Ronald Reagan, and Barry Goldwater. American Greatness, if you want it, but that's not my point. Um, do the research on this, as I said, I was—I've uh, become a bit of an amateur expert on it. The Ronald Reagan, as true of the William Buckleys and the Barry Goldwaters, all get praise after they either retire from public life or pass away in other words when they're no longer a threat to the left wing or the liberal establishment after they are no longer in power after they no longer have a megaphone and a microphone i'll give you an example let's do ronald reagan for just a moment a little bit of history here it's kind of fun maybe but also hopefully instructive what they did to trump was no different the difference is that trump punched back. That's the difference. Uh, Ronald Reagan, I I did a simple search that I can find to simply the New York Times and simply the years 1976 to 1985. I can explain why I chose those years later, but in any event, I did a very circumscribed search of how many times columnists, headlines, or People in a story in the New York Times called Ronald Reagan a racist. How many times they've called him a racist while he was either running for president or president? There's more hits than I can count. The way I searched within the New York Times, they don't give me a number of results. But it goes on for pages. It goes on for pages. Reagan's racial attitudes is one headline. Reagan negative on civil rights is another headline. Another, the president, referring to Reagan, 1982, the president insensitive to the concerns of blacks. Reagan, racist policies. Reagan, a challenge for the civil rights movement. Reagan, restricting blacks through his policies. On and on they went in calling him the same thing. They weren't doing their work either, or if they were, they were burying it. They were burying it, because I do think a lot of these journalists do know better, but their ideology trumps all, and they censor themselves for the party line. Ronald Reagan, before World War II, there's a f- great story, and most people don't know it. He only told it once. He only told it once. I'll tell you how he told the story. He was a young radio sportscaster in Des Moines, Iowa. Asleep in my second floor apartment when I heard a woman's voice from the street below yelling, take anything but leave me alone. I looked out the window and saw a woman in a nurse's uniform confronted by a man with a gun. I grabbed my own pistol, a forty-five caliber automatic, pointed it out the window, and ordered, Drop it and get going! You can kind of see Ronald Reagan, that's his scream. Drop it and get going. At least pre-World War II. The felon fled. Reagan went downstairs, and he escorted the nurse across the street to the hospital, where she worked, to give her some calm. He later met up with this nurse, circa 1986 or so, and they had a wonderful reunion. What color is that nurse? Reagan didn't say. She was an African-American. The idea that any of these people, Reagan, Barry Goldwater, who desegregated Sky Harbor Airport and helped found the NAACP in Arizona. None of these people were racists. What has happened is that the liberals and the left seized on something Alex Berenson was talking about. He put it at 20 years. I'd put it at more like 50. But in any event, the le- he seized on something the left has been up to for years which is creating a fear about your opponent or your opposition or your political or your political dissident creating a fear about them with the worst use of language you can summon and that's why the word racism was so prevalent for so many years until it was updated and changed to what we now have which is white supremacy and white supremacist You know why that word changed? They'd ruined the word racism. It's called syntactical saturation. They so overused the word, they rendered it meaningless. Obviously, shame on them for taking an important word and rendering it nugatory for what do we now use to label and identify people like Louis Farrakhan or Malcolm X or David Duke? What word do we use when we find that, hmm, they're the same thing as, oh, say, Ronald Reagan? That's what the left did. They have erased all moral categories by changing the language and weaponizing it for the things that are the most extreme possible. The most extreme possible. Population bomb in the 1970s was going to ruin the world. Nuclear winter because Ronald Reagan was going to be president. Entire ecosystems dissolving within nine years or 10 years under the new environmental version of this. And, of course, Trump, like Reagan, like Goldwater, like Buckley, fascist and racist. That's what they've done. Everything has to be the worst thing possible. As the old song goes, Barry McGuire, we're on the eve of destruction. That's how the left governs. It's not a military-industrial complex that threatens us. It's a crisis-industrial complex. And they make everything a crisis with the worst possible form of language in the extremist sense of its definition. And they ruin the language as much as they ruin the country. When words lose their meaning, people lose their liberty. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us as we head into the holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday, which I wish all of you well with. Um, Gratitude. Thanks. There's a lot to have. There's a lot to express. Maybe start, to quote the aforementioned William Buckley, with the anonymous soldier who volunteers for dangerous missions to enhance the prospects of the army that seeks to defend this nation, this nation dedicated to protecting the citizens of a community which are organized around the self-evident truths that we're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there, in the fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there, in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. Until I went to the churches and prayer houses of America and heard about her in the pulpits, aflame with righteousness, did I understand the secret and genius of America. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. That's often attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville. It's not something he actually said, and it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's true in and of itself. Think about what that means, being great because we are good. And we are good not because of a plot of land. We are good because of a set of ideas and our people, and our people. Keep those ideas strong and burning in your breast. And as the judge says in Bonfire of the Fanities, be decent people be decent people. A world like that is a world to be thankful for. A country like that is a country to be thankful for. Friends like that are friends to be thankful for. Family like that are family to be thankful for. I'm thankful for you. Have a great holiday. God bless you all. Class dismissed.